You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our text this morning, we have two readings. The first one's from the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, we'll read the verses 16 through 38. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will bring not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the fields so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate lands will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, This land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. 
Thus far, reading from the Old Testament, from the prophecy of Ezekiel, we'll read now from Titus chapter 3, the verses 3 through 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Our text this morning, John chapter 3, the verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You cannot, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words born again are probably familiar to you. You've probably heard of them referred to Christians and perhaps other things as well. As I 
looked at this passage this past week and researched a few things here and there, I noticed that it came up, a lot of people mentioned that, that this expression of, of born again came into a popular vocabulary in, in North America and mostly in the United States sometime during the 1970s. People would speak about companies being born again. Uh, car brands could be born again. Politicians, perhaps after a fall, could be born again. Now, why this common way of speaking? Well, it was because, of course, of, of a sort of evangelical resurgence in North America, and especially the United States, and the emphasis on born-again Christianity. I remember hearing a story from Pastor Paul Murphy. He's a church planter in the URC. He works in, in Manhattan, New York. And he tells about some Christians that he met before his conversion. Before his conversion, he was a Roman Catholic. He thought of himself as a Roman Catholic. And he met some people, and they introduced themselves. Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm a born-again Christian. And Reverend Murphy answered, Hi, my name's Paul, and I'm a Roman Catholic. As if there was one type of Christian, a born-again one, and another type that was Catholic. A born-again Christian to our ears, might sound like someone who has attended a, a Billy Graham event or perhaps answered an altar call at a church. Perhaps we would, after hearing someone introduce themselves as a born-again Christian, we might respond, well, hi, I'm, I'm Reformed. This highlights for us really two things, I think. The first is that those words born-again have sort of been, been taken by a particular stream and emphasis in Christianity and really has been divorced from its original intent in John 3. The second is that perhaps as Reformed believers, we're not used to thinking in these terms of of being reborn. And the need for that, perhaps our emphasis is more on on covenant promises and, and covenant obligations. It could very well be that as we read these verses in John 3, we don't know what to do with them. You must be born again. We're unfamiliar, if not uncomfortable, with this teaching. And so it is that we come to our text this morning to eavesdrop, as it were, on this conversation between the Lord Jesus and Nicodemus and to hear the Word of God Himself as He expounds on the powerful yet mysterious work of the Holy Spirit in giving birth to Christians, in begetting spiritual children for the Father through the gospel and resu- uh, the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus teaches the covenant-born, scripture-saturated leader and teacher of the people of God, you must be born again. He teaches the the covenant-born, scripture-saturated leader and teacher of the people of God, yes, even you must be born again. So we'll consider that this is this born again is the work of the Spirit, and that the response of it is for Jesus Christ, and that the result of it is from God Himself. It's Trinitarian structure here. It's the work of the Spirit, it's for Jesus Christ. 
And the response is from God the Father. So first then, this rebirth, this being born again is the work of the Holy Spirit. As we return to our, our text, we see that again Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And that for John, the writer of this gospel, is very significant. Yes, it's true that that's the time that it happened. He did it at night. But John is always speaking about the contrast between the darkness and the light. Darkness is the state of this world. It speaks of the moral depravity, sinful rebellion, and spiritual blindness of this world. Nicodemus, though he's a member of the Pharisees, a prominent and influential group, he's even, Jesus refers to him later in the text as the teacher of Israel. He was probably a very prominent Pharisee. Yet even he shares in this darkness that encompasses the whole world. As the conversation reveals, even Nicodemus is not able to see and understand this light. But we should realize that Nicodemus himself would have realized, would have shared in, in, in his understanding of this present state of the world, the same understanding in general that John has. He knew that they were like the people in Isaiah 9, the people who were living in darkness, the people who in darkness walked. And he, like the other Jews, was, was living in, in expectation of the light, in the hope of, of the light from God to come. The coming of the Messiah promised in the Old Testament who would establish God's final and glorious kingdom. Nicodemus knew that this world was dark and he was waiting for light from God. And from many passages in Isaiah 35, 61 and others, Nicodemus knew that the coming of this kingdom would, would be accompanied with all sorts of miraculous signs and, and wonders. And that's why, it seems, he comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you are a teacher who, who comes from God. Because no one else would be able to, to perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. And so behind this comment is really a masked question. Is your coming, does that have something to do with this kingdom that we're waiting for? Are you a forerunner, perhaps? of the kingdom. Well, Nicodemus asks if Jesus is a teacher who comes from God, and Jesus is, in fact, a teacher who comes from God. In fact, he is the Messiah who comes from God. But as Jesus often did, he doesn't go right to the heart of the question that's asked him. He goes right past that. He goes right to the heart of the questioner who asked the question. His concern isn't so much to answer Nicodemus's question, it's to get Nicodemus to start asking questions about himself. And he says, I tell you the truth, truly, truly, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Straight to the heart of the listener, why does Jesus respond this way? It seems kind of odd that he would respond in the way that he does well, it's because Jesus knows what is in the heart of a man. And he knows the thinking that sits behind Nicodemus's question. Nicodemus knows that this world is in darkness, but he does not think that he 
shares in this darkness. The Gentiles around them might be living with no hope, and in a political sense, the Israelites might be living with no hope of the kingdom of God, but surely the Jews, especially those who keep the law, especially the Pharisees, especially a leader among the Pharisees, is not clouded by this darkness. Surely he would enter the kingdom of God as soon as the kingdom of God comes. That's what Jesus is responding to. No, he says to Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand this. Born again, what do you mean? A man can, can't enter into his mother's womb a second time. And Nicodemus is, is completely on this level, this earthly level. He doesn't get what Jesus is talking about on the spiritual realm. Well, Nicodemus misses the point, but the reader of John can catch it with a keen eye that there's a, a double meaning in this word, and it's caught in the, the footnote in your text. That born again can also mean born from above. It really has a, a dual meaning. And probably Jesus intends it in both ways here. You must be born again. You must be born from above. And this, for the reader of John, immediately causes them to go back in their minds to John chapter 1, verse 13, that the Word of God came... And he gave to those who believed in his name the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. Children born from above. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You need to be born of God, born from above. It's the same point that Jesus makes as he goes on. When he says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Verse 5. There's a lot of questions about what that means. Water and the Spirit. Some people think the water refers to the, the first birth, the natural birth. So the water refers to the amniotic fluid that the baby is in before it's born. The Spirit refers to then a spiritual birth. There's really no reason... Never spoken of anywhere else in Scripture like that. Some think that this born of water refers to baptism, baptism by by water, and then and then another further development as you're reborn by the Spirit. But Nicodemus doesn't catch that. Jesus doesn't go on to speak about baptism in this way, so it doesn't seem that that is the case also either. And the third option is that Jesus is referring to really one thing with both of these words. You must be born of water and spirit. And that would be referring to the, the regenerating work of the spirit. Well, why would you think that? Well, it's because several times in the Old Testament, water is very closely connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, our reading from Ezekiel 36 makes exactly that point. And another reason to believe this is because if we jump ahead to John 3, verse 10, then after Nicodemus doesn't understand, 
Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this. Why? Well, because Nicodemus is, is an Israelite. He's a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He's a leader and teacher of the Pharisees. He should have known the scriptures. He should have known, he should have known that passage that brings water and the Spirit together into one. He should have remembered God's promise of Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's turn there for a moment and take a look. Ezekiel 36, page 1345. We read it together. It's very important, though, to catch the order that things happen here. The prophet Ezekiel is very clear to the people of Israel, I'm not doing this because you guys are so great. In fact, I'm doing this because you guys are so wicked. My name is being profaned. I need to intervene here. And so he says in verse 25 or 24 through 26, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you back, uh, gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And then comes the water in the spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will put in you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the water and the spirit are doing the same thing. Israel is is wicked. They have forsaken the Lord. God is going to, at the same time, cleanse them and give them a new heart so that they're enlivened to God. So that, as Ezekiel goes on to say, then you will follow me. You will serve me. Verse 31, Then you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds. Then you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. Notice the order then. Sometimes when people are talking about being born again, the order is repent and believe and be born again. But here in Ezekiel, it's very clear. Be born again and then repent and believe. This rebirth is the work of the Holy Spirit sovereignly administered by God to a people who are powerless on their own. That water is a sign of God by Himself washing the people from their sins and transforming them into something radically different. Being born of of water and spirit is about a, a new beginning, a new start from death and darkness into life and light. And so we come back then to perhaps some aversion in calling ourselves born-again Christians. Is that really a troubling doctrine for your reformed ears? Does it cause problems with your understanding of of God's covenant relationship with us, His people? It ought not to. For one reason, because Jesus is very clear here, as well as the the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, we must be born again. There's no other way. We must be born from above by the sovereign act of God. We need that radical new beginning. That's worked by the sovereign Spirit of God. 
And this also shouldn't be troubling to our Reformed ears because, brothers and sisters, this is, if we want to put it that way, profoundly Reformed, profoundly biblical. That this rebirth, that this salvation conversion is the work of one, well, really three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the work of the triune God. It's the work that the Spirit does, proceeding from the Father and the Son. He does it by Himself. He goes wherever He pleases, just like the wind. This rebirth is the sovereign work of God. And the response that the Spirit works is for Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ. We'll explain as we go through. What does that mean? A response for Jesus Christ? But it's clear here that this, this spiritual renewal, the water, the Spirit, rebirth is instigated by God and it's carried out completely by Him. It is, after all, a birth. It's a birth. Uh, did you have much to do with your birth? Your physical birth? Did you make the decision at a certain point to be born? I'm now going to come out. Of course not. That's really ridiculous. If you're born, you are born. And you don't really have much to say about the matter. You're born of, of your parents' doing. I don't mind to say really most of the credit belongs to your mother here who carries you for nine months and then pushes you out. But you don't influence the process in any way. Birth happens to you. So it is with spiritual birth. So it is with the birth that Jesus is talking about. It's God's work. He initiates and carries it out. And of course, this is really a good thing. Because considering, if we want to go back to the analogy of a physical birth, you would be unable to, to push yourself out. You can't do it on your own. We cannot give spiritual birth to ourselves. We cannot reach out to God on our own. We cannot raise ourselves up to God's standards. Considering the utter depravity of man, the darkness of this world, its fallenness, if it wasn't for the initiation of the Holy Spirit, we would remain dead in our sins. The work of regeneration is the Spirit's, but we need to move past that the response of regeneration is really where the teacher of Israel, the true teacher of Israel, Jesus, goes with Nicodemus. That's what he's trying to teach him. And this is where we ended last sermon. With the incredible grace of God displayed in sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, we notice that there's a profound distinction between those born of flesh and those born of spirit. On the one side, there's all darkness and, and death and ignorance. On the other side, there's God and life and light. But then verse 16 breaks that cycle as we see that, that God sends His Son from the place of life and light into the place of death and darkness in order to bring salvation. Instead of condemning the world outright, God sends His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. 
He condemned His Son on the cross, but then raised Him up on the third day from the dead so that whoever believed in Him would not be condemned as punishment for their rebellion against God. But through Jesus Christ on the cross would have eternal life. And that's the point to which Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus is driving. What we're called upon is is not to ponder and to, to question and to figure out the nuances of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit, and we leave it there. But we are to look where the Holy Spirit Himself brings us to and and points us to like a spotlight. It's to bring us to the crucified Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. What the Lord Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is that he needs to humble himself before God realize his own darkness and depravity. It's not just everyone else out there. It's you. And he needs to look to Jesus Christ for life and for light. Let's consider for a moment. Why did the Lord Jesus do it like this? Why did he first teach Nicodemus about the need to be reborn by the Spirit, and then point him to his own death on the cross? Well, it's because that's precisely the message that Nicodemus needed. He thought, along with many other Jews of his day, that that he could presume upon his place before God. He had the covenant promises. He had his own stature and status and abilities. He was born into the people of God and he kept the law of God carefully. Nicodemus assumed that things were okay between him and God. Perhaps not everyone else, but between a a good law-keeping, covenant-born Jew like himself, things were good. Why would he have to be born again? And so Jesus had to impress upon him two things. One, Nicodemus, you along with everyone else in this world need the Spirit's work and help to come to God. You need a new heart in order to come to God. You are not just with God because of your own abilities and stature, because of where you were born. It's God who brings and begets children for Himself. And second, Jesus is saying, you need to believe in me. Nicodemus needs to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, sent to be condemned on the cross for him. And brothers and sisters, this is where we need to go as well. This is where we need to go. This is where the covenant promises and obligations drive us to every time again. Not to presume upon our own stature, Not to presume that we were born in the right place at the right time, but they're to drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And there we find salvation. This is where the Old Testament promises come together. This is where baptism drives us to. The washing through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't presume upon all these things for our confidence before God. All these things come together in faith in Christ. Through belief in Christ, you realize your own darkness and depravity. 
through belief in Christ, you realize that the sovereign spirit does work on his own, sovereignly. Through belief in Christ, you realize ever and again, more and more, that yes, you need to be born again. You were powerless to come on your own. Paul says in Titus 3, he he recounts all the things that we are, depraved, sinful, rebellious. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit pointing us to Jesus Christ, the response that the new heart gives to look to Jesus Christ by which we are saved, by which we are regenerated. It's only through Jesus Christ that we are alive. Alive to God. Alive to God. And even the result of all this is from God. Salvation is sovereignly administered by God. It's accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. And as we see in this last point, even God produces fruit in our lives. It's worked by God. See this first, we go back in our text to verses 3 and 5 about this kingdom of God we are able to see and to enter the kingdom of God. The result of the the new birth by the Spirit is that you're now able to see and enter the kingdom. Well, what is this kingdom? Well, the kingdom is, is a spiritual kingdom. Still, in this world, it's, it's the breaking in of, of this place of life and light, of, of heaven and of glory. It's breaking into this place of death and darkness. We participate here in this world in the life and light that come through Jesus Christ. It's real and it's present, but it can't be, be seen or, or touched by the, by the physical eye. This kingdom is all about the King who came from heaven. This kingdom is a place where even in this dark and depraved world, where God rules completely, where sin is dealt with, That's the kingdom within the large contact. It's a place in this world of of refuge and safety. But it's also the front lines of the battle. It's a place where the light from heaven is advancing in the world. How can this be? Well, because Christ is the king of this kingdom. And he is both the prince of peace and the warrior king. He gives us true peace with God. But that peace with God requires that we must fight. Fight against sin. Fight against the devil. Fight against temptations. It necessarily involves a fight when we enter the kingdom of God. When you enter the kingdom of God, your life is turned from this this darkness around you. It's drawn to the light of Jesus Christ. It's drawn to the glory of God. And your life becomes totally enamored with the King. You find your life in Him. He becomes your master and and more and more you want to do what He wants you to do. You want to be more like Him. You become transformed by this kingdom. Of course, all this talk about kingdom is going to sound a little hokey to you if you have not been born from above. That's because you can't see it. And someone's going to be put off by the idea of, of, about their life becoming not their own. They quite like the darkness. They quite like all the temptations and, 
and satisfaction they can find in this world. They don't want others to hold them to account. They don't want the Word of God to shine in on their light and expose their evil deeds. This is all the natural reaction to the light, as Jesus declared, declares in verses 19 through 21. The light has come into the world, but the darkness, but the men loved darkness more than they loved the light. Jesus Christ is the Word of God and He, he brings God's truth and righteousness to bear on this world. But if you're living in rebellion, then you're not going to like that. And you've probably experienced this, haven't you? You bring the Word of God, you bring Jesus Christ and His powerful work on the cross into the conversation at at work or elsewhere. And people don't really want to even deal with that because they know where you're going with that. You're going to have to change your life. How many times hasn't someone excused themselves from, from considering Jesus Christ coming to church, committing to serving God, because they don't want to let go of their extramarital sex life, of their lust, of just doing their own thing on their own time, of, of their Sunday, of their greed. But for the regenerated child of God, fruit in keeping with repentance, being drawn to that light and and being transformed by that light, it just comes. It just happens. A good tree bears good fruit because that tree is regenerated by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit renews your life. The light of Jesus Christ comes into your life. And it becomes clear that this life is one that's produced by God. And all the fruits of it come from God. That's what Jesus says in verse 21. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen clearly that what he has done has come from God. And as the Lord Jesus impresses this on Nicodemus, so he does with us. From beginning to end, This profound salvation, this new birth, this faith, these works are all generated by God, by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so our confidence before God doesn't come from our covenant status. It doesn't come from our own stature or abilities. It doesn't come from ourselves at all. Our confidence shouldn't even be in our rebirth or in our faith or in our God-produced works. Those can provide assurance, but that's not where our confidence is. Often people will say, well, how do I know if I've been reborn? How do I know if these are fruit of the Spirit or just just have a good personality or something? No, our confidence before God must be centered on the triune work of God, which itself is centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. Only through Him can you enter the kingdom of God. Only through Him do you gain your status before God. You don't need to question your rebirth. You don't need to question where you are now. Look at the beloved Son of God who who shed His blood on the cross for your sake 
and there find your confidence before God. As surely as He is accepted before the throne of God. And when you look to Him in faith, so are you. Only through Jesus Christ can you too be confident and 100% confident that you too are a child born of God. Amen. Let's come before God in, in prayer. Most gracious God in heaven, we thank You for Your sovereignly administered divine work. O Lord, lead us by Your Spirit, through Your Word, to be drawn to Jesus Christ and His light. We thank You for Him. Father, we thank You that in Him we have confidence. O Lord, we look not to ourself. We look not to our own abilities. We look not to our place of birth. We look to Him. And we praise You for Him. And we pray in Him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.